seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, this morning we will uh, concentrate on the last two verses of this chapter. We will concentrate there on uh, verses 20 and 21. 20 and 21 is this doxological culmination of the heart of the Apostle Paul as he has just reflected over that extravagant grace of God in Jesus Christ and the amazing calling and privilege of the church in being so united to Jesus Christ that we are being built into the temple presence of God here on earth as an anticipation of us serving as the temple presence with God for all eternity. And, and Paul has just reflected over how he came to know Christ and how he has been given this privilege and has the church has been called into this privilege. And so before he moves, in, uh, moves forward in his letter, he, his, his heart just bursts in this doxological praise to God. I'm going to begin reading back in verse 11 to provide us a little context. But make no mistake, we are looking at these last two verses. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and forever. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, impress upon us your presence and power as it is found here in your word and received through your word when we will but simply open our hearts and minds to it and to provide you the space by which your spirit would effectually apply your presence and power in our lives that we would be a church that has been filled with the fullness of Christ. 
It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Last asked us this question of how do we cultivate a ministry as a church, a ministry that is a, a ministry of worship, discipleship, and mission? cultivate the ministry of a local church that is devoted to God and results in bold ministry while avoiding the trap of loveless orthodoxy. How does a church cultivate a ministry that is devoted to God, that is bold in its service and to do that without falling into the trap of loveless orthodoxy. Now, I presented this question to you last week in response to what we know about the church in Ephesus, that they were a congregation that had experienced a powerful conversion to Jesus Christ not just out of the, the, the Roman culture of their day, but out of the pagan worship that the entirety of their lives was based upon. They had this powerful conversion by which they gave up the dark arts. They gave up the, the very expensive uh, um, uh, books and things that they needed to, to live out those dark arts. And they were willing to be hurt financially in this conversion to Christ, but they did it with excitement and they did it with boldness. And they did it as a congregation that, that had a cruciform devotion to Christ as their devotion as a church was a devotion that was, was taking place as they were being persecuted, as they were experiencing trial and tribulation for naming the name of Jesus Christ. They had a bold ministry. But we know that within two generations, the church goes from that to being a church that's known for being very faithful theologically to God. But being warned by Christ that they were going to lose their privilege as serving as a witness for Christ because they had left their first love. And that is the potential for any congregation, we say. It is particularly a temptation for Reformed congregations. We love the Bible. And we like to study the Bible. And we've got confessions and catechisms and systematic theologies and redemptive historical theologies and biblical theologies and exegesis coming out of everywhere. But there can be a temptation to, their, to, to turn God's truth into something that is more of an intellectual stimulation, an intellectual set of concepts where we can even turn the triune God into, into these concepts that are summarized in systematic theology and forgetting that those descriptions are descriptions of a real entity. But there is another reason that a church can become tempted 
into a loveless orthodoxy, can be tempted into becoming a church that stands for truth no matter what, and yet whose heart has grown far from God. And that is precisely the temptation that flows out of what Paul says right here. Last week in verse 14 where he says, for this reason, I never really told you exactly what this reason is. And the reason that I gave you is this history of the church because it's extremely pertinent for us. But it is also for this reason. What reason? Because of the cost of of following Jesus. He says, don't lose heart over what is happening to me. Where is Paul writing from? He is in prison. And why is Paul in prison? Because he has boldly been naming the name of Jesus And look, you and I live in an American culture where we have been trained to think that if you are doing right, you get the right consequences. And if we're serving the king of kings, then if we're serving and serving well, well, then there shouldn't be any hardship for us. There shouldn't be difficulty. If we're serving Christ, then we should be, you know, rewarded a little bit and, you know, have things go nice, have things go our way, have, have a voice that gets to really form and shape our culture, that gets to direct politics, that gets to have an existence in which the success of our king is, is, is embodied in the, success, in the success of his church. That's... That's the culture that we live in that's been pressed upon us, and that's how we tend to think. And so when you get faced with someone like the Apostle Paul who who is overwhelmed with the glory of what it means to have been made new in Jesus Christ and to become a recipient of this extravagant grace, and you see him languishing in prison, that can be really difficult. For us to understand, it can be very challenging for a young church like the church in Ephesus. Keep being bold because of Christ, regardless of what happens to your outer man, regardless of the circumstances of your outer life, regardless of the circumstances and the negative consequences that come to you because you become hurt financially for naming Christ, because you become hurt politically, because you become hurt vocationally, because you become hurt for whatever reason for naming the name of Jesus Christ. Beloved, one of the biggest temptations to a congregation that attempts to be bold for Christ and then suffers because of it One of the greatest temptations is to retreat. To retreat into safety. And the ministry becomes what? 
inward facing. This is what we call in church studies the ingrown church, where the overwhelming time, treasures, and talents of the congregation become focused inwardly. Why? Because it is so much safer. It doesn't cost as much. It's not as difficult. Is there sin within the church? You better believe it. So is it perfectly safe to have an inward-facing ministry? No. There's still all kinds of opportunities to suffer for Christ. But is it the same as reaching out into the community, especially when the culture and the community in which you exist is progressively moving away from God's truth. If you were to ask some of our our seasoned saints here what it was like to be a follower of Christ 40, 50 years ago, in case of Lauren in the 19th century, It was a lot different. It was still difficult. People still had sin in their hearts. But the culture itself was a culture that had been more formed and influenced and shaped by a Judeo-Christian perspective. And what you and I are facing is that that is eroding and eroding and eroding. And the temptation for us as a Reformed church is not just to develop a loveless orthodoxy because we we get mentally and intellectually stimulated by theology, but because it's going to be a temptation of having a safer arena of existence. Let's just sit within a circle and we'll look at each other and we'll say the things that everyone already believes back and forth to one another. Instead of being vulnerable and opening up the circle to those who are on the outside, to those whom Jesus has described as haters of God and therefore haters of his people. How do we develop a ministry that is devoted to God and bold in its service while escaping the temptation of loveless orthodoxy of an inwardly facing ingrown ministry? What Paul says, it comes through prayer. And as we said last week, he prays for two specific things here. He prays that the church would be strengthened according to the riches of God's glory in Christ in our inner being. Why? Because the outer existence is not always going to be going very well as the Ephesians are already experiencing. The outer existence of power, prestige, 
influence, uh, what appears to be success, what appears to come across as strength and vitality and all that stuff, that stuff is not always going to be there. And quite often it's not going to be there at all. And yet the people of God are not weak because of the outer man, because the inner man is being strengthened by the power of Jesus Christ through his spirit, where the extravagant grace of the eternal God is, is being worked within us. And so we pray. We pray for that strength. Not the strength of the outer man. We pray for the strength of the inner man. And he goes on to tell us that we pray to be strengthened in the corporate apprehension of the all-encompassing reality of the love of God. That God's love is like that ocean that we sang about, okay? That it's the very environment in which we live. It's the air we breathe. The love of Christ, it's, it's height, it's, it's depth, it's breadth. It is all-encompassing because it is immeasurable. It is eternal. It is limitless. There is always more of the love of God in Christ to experience. And so he says, pray for this type of strength. The, the strength that comes from the strengthening of the inner man through, the, through the, uh, the riches of Christ, through the power of the Spirit, and to be strengthened in the congregational apprehension of the all-encompassing love of God. That when we pray for those things, Paul tells us we're praying to be filled with the fullness of God. Now here's the problem. You ready? And I don't mean this personally, but I do mean this absolutely truly. The problem is, your praying and my praying are too paltry. We're told to pray for these things. But I'm telling you, your prayers and my prayers are too paltry. We exist as the household of the extravagant grace of Christ, and we pray as those who are part, a part of the household of the exuberance of Christ. And yet, I can, I can tell you, without sitting next to you, that your prayers and my prayers are too paltry. They're too small. They're too meager. They're too trifling. They're too scant. They are too insufficient. But that's because God is too grand. Your prayers are too paltry because God is so far beyond us that we could never pray in a way that would grasp the fullness of who he is and what he is doing. 
Notice that in this doxological conclusion of the Apostle Paul, he tells us that we are praying to the one, verse 20, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. When we are praying, we're praying to the God who transcends our ability to grasp. We are praying to the one that is so vast, that is so eternal, that is so limitless in his being, let alone his abilities, that there is nothing that you could think or ask that comes close to who he actually is. What that means is that by nature of how awesome he is, our prayers are too Paltry. He has this ability. He has this power that is, that is described as a power or the ability to accomplish something that is, is far more abundant. It is an adverb in the Greek that means to an extraordinary degree. It, it refers to excess over what would even be expected. It's a way of describing supremacy to a far greater degree. It is a way of saying immeasurably more. Now think about that. Whatever you pray, he has the power to accomplish immeasurably more than what you think or ask. He says these two verbs, to ask, to think. Ask obviously has to do with prayer. It is a request, literally. But this word think here has this dual understanding. It is, on the one hand, it's a word that means to understand, to, to perceive, to comprehend something on the basis of really careful thought. It's a way of describing a rationality that you can connect the dots and come to the right conclusion. But this word is also used as a way to describe forming an idea about something. This is creative. This is artistic. This is a creative looking at God and on the basis of what God has said, you are not only connecting the dots that are there, but you see that there are dots that keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going. It has the idea of mental conception. It has the idea of to conceive something. It even is used to translate the word to imagine. God is far more to a greater degree than what you could ever ask or imagine. That's who he is. And I guarantee you, our prayers don't live up to that. And that's not meant to discourage you. It's meant to encourage you not to become easily satisfied in your prayer life. Don't become one who, who, who gets, you know, you've prayed something a couple times, you get a little frustrated, and you're, well, why should I even keep praying it? I've prayed it, God hasn't answered it. See, that 
perspective has shrunk in God. And your prayers are in response to the way you just shrank God. What Paul says is that our prayers are to be formulated in asking for the fullness of the God who will fill us with the, according to the eternal riches of Jesus Christ, who can do that to such a degree that we would never even be able to think it up, we could never even imagine it, and we certainly wouldn't know how to ask for it. That is how far a transcendent God is, and this is why your and my prayers are too paltry. But notice here he says that not only is there this power that God has, he says it is a power that is at work within us. Not only do you struggle to really pray according to who God is, you and I struggle to pray according to who we are in Christ. In Christ, we are the objects of that eternal, powerful, incomprehensible, unimaginable power of God that that is at work, not just out there. It's at work here. And you have to trust that to pray according to that reality. Our prayers are paltry because God is too grand and because we don't really trust how grand God has made us in Jesus Christ. What we have to do as the church is cultivate this transcendent glory of God and the church, which Paul says is something that is going to exist forever and forever and forever. Is that what is driving and motivating your prayer life? This eternal, incomprehensible, grasping of a power that is able to do more than we could think, more than we can pray for, and is something at work within us. Is that how you pray? Is that how you pray when you pray about the ministry of this church? Is that how you pray when you pray about the ministry of ESL, when you pray about the ministry to children? When you pray about the ministry to youth, when you pray about the ministry to women and to men and to everyone who comes into these doors, but also as you pray for every person you come into contact with outside of these walls is the incomprehensible power of God. Is that what is motivating your interactions with God, with yourself, and with others? Because, beloved, that is how we avoid that trap and temptation of an ingrown, inwardly focused ministry. Not only because of intellectual curiosities, but specifically as times will continue to get harder and harder and harder. The power to keep preaching Christ, even if you are in prison, 
comes through cultivating a faith that is, in, that is able to imagine the transcendence of God and the power and presence of that God within myself so that nothing can limit my devotion. Prison walls, nothing. Being laughed at, nothing. Losing financial viability, nothing. Being mocked, derided, nothing. Losing vocational respect, nothing. And I could go down the list. There is nothing that you and I can experience in the outer man that the inner man is not already empowered to transcend because of the unimaginable transcendent power of God at work within us. And look, whatever I say about this, guess what I'm not doing? I'm not coming close to actually communicating what is really said here. What we have to do as the church of Jesus Christ, what you have to do as individual believers in Christ, is you have to cultivate an imagination of faith. Not coming up with uh, you know, not imagining new truths and not imagining the way we wish God would be or the way we hope life would be, right? Not that type of imagination, but the type of imagination that is able to receive what God is saying about himself and become so overwhelmed by it that you allow your faith to start reaching higher and higher and higher and deeper and deeper and deeper and broader and broader and broader so that we together as the church of Jesus Christ might come to grasp more and more that all-encompassing love of God in Christ and serve in light of that reality. What this means is that whatever you are asking of the Lord today, you're not asking enough. And what limits you is the reality that all of us face, and that is our lives are formed and shaped by the world that we see, by the world we experience. And that is why to follow Christ, to follow him by faith, is to look to the things that are not seen and to embrace what you may not be experiencing on a daily basis that you are aware of, but by faith embracing the reality that the unimaginative power of the eternal God is at work strengthening your inner being so that you can express that outwardly and exalting in, in worship in embodying Christ in discipleship and extending the grace of God through mission. Beloved, cultivate a view of God that goes beyond the theology that you're able to nice and neatly fit into your little package and embrace the mysteries of the God who has revealed enough of himself that we can know him and yet has not revealed all of himself and that there is so much more to know.
as you pray the prayer for the fullness of Christ in this congregation, do so by developing the imagination of your faith so that every time you pray, you can acknowledge to God that you're not praying big enough, but that you know that he's going to do far more abundantly than everything that we think or ask. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, fill us with the awe and with the wonder of your eternal presence because so much of our days we are faced with battling against how our sinful bodies hurt as they continue to live under the effects of sin, as we engage in relationships that continue to be affected negatively by sin and and never fully reach what they could be in Jesus Christ, in our marriages, in, in the relationships between parents and children, in the relationships between sibling and sibling, and within the relationships of, with those who are outside of these walls, Lord, everywhere that we go, uh, relationally, everywhere we go, physically and in our own health, everything that we are experiencing in vocation, in politics, in influence, in culture, everything, Lord, is working against us. And we become so accustomed to the way the world, the flesh, and the devil try to squeeze us into their mold that we often become unaware. And as a result, Lord, the imagination of our faith shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And so, Lord, free us and free the imagination of our faith from the immediate circumstances of what we experience in this world on a daily basis and help us to cultivate within ourselves the reality of the world to come, which is already ours in Christ as we have already received all the blessings of that place in the, spiritual, in the heavenly places in Christ. Fill us, Lord, in, in our self-perception that we are those already made alive, raised up, and seated with you. And that the power of the transcendent, eternal God is already working in us and will work through us as we open ourselves up to it more and more and more. And may that, Lord, lead us to willingly take up the cross, and for the joy that is set before us in Christ, be willing to walk the path of suffering that is the path that leads to glory. And Lord, use this church here within this community, within this area, with regards to this culture, Use us, as Roger said, to to be a part of, of this grand work that you do for the glory of your name in order to give us more brothers and sisters to enjoy eternity with. Use us. Give us a willingness to, to count the cost and jump in feet first and never look back. 
that the ministry of this church would be known, not just as the theological church or the church that worships. May we be known for worship and theology and discipleship and mission as a people who live in the enamorment of the triune God, that we would glory in our Redeemer and long to behold you finally and fully face to face. Father, make our prayers more bold. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.